You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Well, hey, as I was getting ready for this week and thinking about uh, Malachi chapter 4, one of the things that, that I couldn't help but think about uh, was the fact that when, when I was a kid and when I was growing up, uh, and maybe you've had this experience, uh, that your parents did things, or at least my parents did things, uh, that I thought were a little bit embarrassing or at least weird. And so uh, I kind of thought that when I was a kid, that when I became a parent, uh, there were certain things that I would just never do because I always thought it was weird uh, that my parents did those things. So like the licking of the thumb and the cleaning the face, right? If you've been on the receiving end of that, that's just, that's just nasty. Nobody likes that. And so I was like, man, because my, my parents would do that. You know, they'll lick the thumb and like scrub your face off and it hurts. And I thought, I'll never do that. And then I had kids. I would find myself licking the thumb and scrubbing the face. And I would catch myself being like, I've turned into that, that guy. Like sometimes my parents would say weird things and I thought I would never say that because uh, not that I was ever in trouble, but my sister was. And so like there, there would be times that like my parents would say things like, do you want to go into timeout? And the answer is always, well, no, but thanks for asking, right? Like they say things like, do you want a spanking? Uh, I'm going to vote no on that one, right? Like, do you want to be grounded? Well, no, but thanks for asking my advice on that one. So I thought, I'm never going to ask my kids those kinds of questions because I know they're going to be like me and they're going to say no, and I'm not really asking them what they want. I'm threatening to give them those things, and yet I turned out to be that guy. In fact, one of the things my dad would say all the time is you would say something to him like we would be in a car ride and say, hey, dad, I'm thirsty. And he would say, hey, Thursday, I'm Friday. Good to meet you. And I'm like, I will never say that. And yet I've caught myself saying that. The worst was, I would tell my dad something, and he would say, I see, said the blind man, as he picked up his hammer and saw. And it would drive us as, as kids, it drove us nuts, and yet I've caught myself saying those same things to my kids, and I'm embarrassed for them every single time. Now, now one of the things that, 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 that is true, one of the things that God's trying to communicate to the nation of Israel, and it's one of the things that he's trying to communicate to us in the book of Malachi, is that God is like a father, that God has the heart of a father, that if we were to think of one way to look at God, one way to think about God, if there's one way to relate to him, God says, I want you to think about me as, as your heavenly father who loves you. And I want you to know that you're my children, and I'm like your father. And so the way I interact with you, the things that I do, the, the ways I command you, the ways uh, that, that I have a relationship with you are like a father with his children. In fact, Malachi opens this way. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, God says, uh, Through the prophet Malachi, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? God says, hey, this, this relationship we have is like one of a parent's and a child, and God is a father that uh, we, some of us in the room have maybe had not so good fathers. And so God says, hey, don't look at your earthly father and put me in that category. Rather, I'm a perfect father. I'm a good father. I'm a loving father. I'm the best father. Rather, you should look at God and then define what a father is that way. And you know, one of the things that my parents would say from time to time when I was a kid was this phrase, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And the thing was, whenever that statement was made, I thought, I was getting the raw end of that deal. 
Like, it was usually like I got the spanking, and it was like, well, this hurts me more than you. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm the one walking away hurt. Or like, I got grounded one time for a really long time, like a really long time. And I'm sure I was innocent, but I got grounded for a really long time. And I remember my parents saying, well, this hurts us more than it hurts you. And I'm like, but I'm the one that's grounded. How does this hurt you more than it hurts me? And yet, as we interact with Scripture, I think one of the things that's that's happened in my own life is I think becoming a parent has taught me more about the heart of God uh, than I knew before, especially because God tells us that he is like a father. I'm not a big fan of pain. Uh, I try to avoid pain at most costs. Uh, there's, there's been times in my life where uh, I'm having like maybe a little surgery done or something and somebody will say something like, well, that's no big deal. No, like, no, 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 it is a big deal because it's being done to me. Like I'm not a big fan of pain at all. And yet a couple of years ago, uh, my son, Nolan, our youngest son, was on some monkey bars and broke both uh, the bones in his arm and it was bad. Like, I'll never forget being in meeting with the orthopedic surgeon. Like, you know it's bad when the guy you're meeting with has the name surgeon on the end of his name. And, and like, I remember they casted his arm, and, and I almost showed you a picture, but it's just too sad, where literally they, they put, like, these two Chinese torture devices on his fingers. Like, you ever played that where you can't get your fingers out? And they hung his arm like this because it's so broken, uh, and he's just sitting in this harness, and they're trying to wrap his arm, and the doctor's telling us, hey... Uh, this was on a Friday, so great weekend ahead, right? This is on a Friday. And what they said is, if this, we want to see you back on Monday, and we're just going to schedule a surgery on Monday just in case. And I'm like, I thought this was just a broken arm. Like, why, why are we talking about surgery? And in that moment, my, my head was spinning, but I had this thought. I'm not a fan of pain, but I would have given anything to switch spots with my son. Like, if there was a contract that I could have signed, I said, hey, I'll break my arm and heal his, I'll, I'll go through that. And I think uh, sometimes the heart of the father does those things and says, hey, I know what you're going through is tough, and yet I wish you could avoid that. In fact, as a parent, uh, sometimes we discipline our children because we love them. We say, hey, there's some, some areas and there's some things in your life that we want to work out of you. Hey, some stuff that we want to recorrect and kind of readjust. And it, it, it's painful. And it's not because that we, we don't love you. It's because we do love you, that sometimes we discipline you, that, that that's the heart of the Father, that sometimes God says, hey, because I love you so much, I can't leave you the way you are. I need to, to change you. In fact, sometimes as parents, we allow pain to enter the, the lives of our children because it's for their good. And now I know this can be a controversial topic, so I'm just going to hit on it lightly, and I'm not telling you to do it or not do it. But I remember uh, when our kids were young going to the doctor for their checkups and shots. And I think I hated those appointments more than they did, to be honest. Because as a parent, you're like in a dilemma because the kids, you're in the car, and they're like, where are we going? And we're like, to the doctor. And they instantly think, am I getting shots? And the question is, do you lie or tell the truth? Like, there's integrities on the line. And for us, for us, like for our kids, we knew that every time they get, got a shot, it meant for that next few days, they were going to have a fever and be sick, and it was going to be horrible. Like, we were the parents that were giving our kids, like, ibuprofen and Tylenol on the way to the doctor, because we just knew this was going to go bad. And I'll never forget the appointment. I'll never forget the appointment where Shane got some shots and Nolan was getting his first shot. And like we'd been through this with with Shane before, so we kind of knew how this would go for him, but we had no idea how it was going to go for Nolan. And so Shane gets his shots, which involves yelling, crying, and screaming, and being really upset, like we have betrayed him. 
And yet what we're thinking is this is for your good because you you don't want any of these diseases. Like this is going to help you. And then it became time for Nolan. And here's the thing. If you've ever done this before, you know what I'm talking about. Because the doctor makes you the bad guy. So the doctor looks at me and says, hey, dad, I need you to hold down the kid. And I'm like, no, no, you bring a nurse in and I'll hold the lollipop. Okay, like I want to be that guy. Because somehow I get to hold the kids down and you give them stickers. I leave with them and they're still mad at me. And they talk about how you gave them stickers on the way home. And so I remember I, I, hold, I hold Nolan for the first time, and he's kind of looking at me, and I'm thinking, like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I'll never forget, the doctor put the shot in the leg, and I kid you not, like, Shane would, like, cry and weep, and he was brokenhearted, and Nolan, like, turned into a UFC fighter. I kid you not. He, like, clenched his fist. He, like, looked the doctor in the eye, and he was just like, yeah! And I thought he was going to turn into the Hulk. I kid you not. I was like, if this kid turns green, I'm letting go. I'm out. I'm out. I'm letting go. And, like, and, and once Nolan was done, he was just done. He was like, all right, we're good. And I, I hate those moments. And like, uh, our kids are older now, and like, our kids still talk about that. Shane, Shane will ask from time to time, hey, I'm done with shots for a few more years, right? And I'm like, why are you still thinking about this? And yet as parents, there's times that uh, there's things that we allow, things that, that we have to go through, things that we have to talk about. And as a kid, I don't think we normally realize those things, but as parents, you go, hey, there's certain things that we have to address, certain things that we have to do, certain things that we have to go for because we love you. See, one of the things we have to know about God is that because he's a father that loves us, he always tells the truth to us. And see, unlike our earthly parents, uh, maybe we try to argue with our parents, and maybe you've even won a, an argument with your parents. I've never won an argument with my parents, ever, never. They always won. Like, I, I remember when I was 16, I had a car, and the way, they, the way they divvied it up is I owned a third, my mom owned a third, and my dad owned a third. And so I never won that argument, because what would happen is I would want to go somewhere, and they wouldn't want me to go somewhere, so they wouldn't tell me no. They would just say, you can go, but my third of the car can't. And I found those to be incredibly frustrating arguments because I tried to figure out which third I could leave in the driveway, and there was none. There was none. And so God is like a father who loves us, so he always tells the truth to us, but the reality is, is he always gets the final word. Like, like we can argue and we can object, but he always gets the final word. And as we go to the closing of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, I think we have to know this, that God is a loving father that he loves us, so he tells the truth to us, and it's not going to be fun. In fact, it's kind of painful. But what he's saying is, because I love you and because I want what's best for you, I'm going to tell the truth to you. And by the way, you might disagree with this, but as your heavenly father, I get the last word in this. So here's what he says, Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all the evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So here's what God says. He, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. This is true for us as well. And he's going to say, as a good, loving father, you have to know something. There's a day that is coming. 
And I want you to know that it's coming so you can prepare for it. And what he's saying is that day is called the day of the Lord. In fact, every single Old Testament prophet, this is one of the major things they communicate, that there is a day coming and that day will belong to God. It is the day of the Lord. That there is a, 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 a succession of events that will happen and they all lead to one place. It leads to the entire population of the world standing before the feet of Jesus where he will pass judgment. And it's called the day of the Lord. And he goes, hey, as a father, I want you to know the day's coming. Like, I want you to be able to prepare for it. And the reason I want you to be able to prepare for it is because what he's telling us is there will be a day where every single human being on the planet will stand before God and give an account for their life. And what will happen on that day is what scripture says is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There's all kinds of scriptures. This is the way Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those and in heaven and those on earth and those under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what this means. But God is saying that literally there's a day that belongs to him. It is the day of the Lord. It is a day where every single person will stand before him and will confess that he is who he says he is, that Jesus is Lord, and that he is who he says he is. And they will confess that, and they will bow before him in honor of him. Now, for believers, that's just worship. Like, as a Christ follower, you go, well, this isn't new to me. I, I've been doing this for years. This is just worship. God, I believe in you. I confess that you are who you say you are, and I, I attribute glory to you, for you alone are worthy of glory, but for others. It'll be the very first time in their life that they say those things. It'll be for the very first time kind of begrudgingly that they will kneel before God and confess with their mouth that he is the Lord. And what God as a loving father is telling us is for those that believe in Jesus, those who have been saved by grace through faith, that'll be a great day. It'll be a day that you see Jesus for the full time in glory, and you'll bend your knee and say, Jesus, I love you, and you are who you say you are, and I love you. But for those that don't believe, it'll be the worst day, that you'll stand before Jesus, and rather than feeling his love and his mercy and his grace, rather you'll stand judged by him. And see, this, this is a, a tough topic, not because it isn't true, but because we live in a world where everybody's a winner, where kids grow up being covered in Perel hand sanitizer and protected from everything, a world where college students need safe spaces so that anytime somebody talks about anything that they don't agree with or doesn't match their worldview, they can grab a pillow and be safe and comforted by others. See, the fact of the matter, this is a very offensive truth, and it's not talked about very often. In fact, it seems as though as our culture becomes more and more insensitive and more and more protected, the gospel seems to be something that we kind of back down from. And see, the reality is, church, is there's all kinds of scriptures that we can talk about and that we will talk about. There's all kinds of scripture that talks about having better relationships. There's all kinds of scriptures that talk about experiencing financial freedom. 
Uh, there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about discovering your purpose and your, your spiritual gifts and, and living on mission. And we're going to talk about all those things. But the thing that we can't lose sight of, the thing that we can never back down from is the gospel. Like we can never lose sight of it. But we can never be ashamed of it. We can never be afraid to talk about it because it is the truth that every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that God in his glory cannot shy away from sin and he cannot accept sin, but rather in his great love for us, he sent Jesus, fully God, fully man, perfect. Uh, the scriptures say that he is pure, that he is spotless, that he is without blemish, and that even though he did not sin, he died on the cross in our place for our sin, becoming our sin. That on the cross, the wrath of God that you and I deserve is literally poured out on Jesus, who absorbs the wrath of God for us. And some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture come from Jesus on the cross when he says, it is finished. That our sin has been abolished. That the gap between us and God has now been bridged. The law has now been fulfilled. That the relationship between man and God is restored. That the Holy Spirit now dwells in the hearts of men and women. And that we can truly know and truly love and truly be forgiven by God, by grace, through faith. And it means that we become fully accepted, fully loved, fully adopted sons and daughters of God. It means that we as his children have an inheritance and our inheritance is the Lord. Our, our inheritance is the hope of the Lord. Our inheritance is the promises of God. Our inheritance is the promise of an eternity with God. You see, God is a good father who loves us, reminds us at the end of Malachi that there is more to life than just this. There's more to our lives than what's just happening here. Listen, this is important. God's not going to speak again for 400 years. And one of the last things he wants to say to the nation of Israel through the prophet of Malachi is, don't lose sight of eternity. Don't allow your to-do list, don't allow your circumstances, don't allow the nine-to-five today, don't allow the garbage to be in need taken out, the bills needing paid, the, the meals that you need to cook, the job things you need to get done. Don't lose sight on there's more to this life, that there is eternity. And what God says is that according to the scriptures, there's only one or two places that you and I will spend eternity. And it's not a popular truth, but that doesn't change it from being truth. And what God says to the nation of Israel is, listen, there's two places that you wind up for eternity. There's, even, there's either heaven or hell. And see, I didn't make this up. I'm just preaching the word to you, and I believe it. God speaks to a whole nation, just like he speaks to us. and says, listen, there's a place called hell. It's hot, and it's real, and you probably don't want to end up there. And the good news is you don't have to. But what God says is, hey, there is an eternal destination called hell. And I get it because sometimes people will go, how could a loving God, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I get that tension because I know that sometimes we'll read the Old Testament and go, man, it seems like God just was kind of angry 
and maybe needed some more friends and a good cup of coffee, and like he just needed to be nicer. But it's not that God's friendlier in the New Testament, it's that the wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus. It's that Jesus took all that we deserve. And God says, listen, there's this place called hell, and it's like a fire. It's a burning oven that's ablaze. That all throughout Scripture, it is, it is talked about as a conscious, never-ending torment of burning and devouring. And I know that sometimes people go, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I don't see it that way. See, I think because God loves us so much, he gives us what we ultimately want. And so for those of us who choose to live apart from him, those of us that choose to deny him and not believe in him, he wouldn't force us into an eternity where we would have to. So God says, listen, if you want to live apart from me, then I will grant you that for eternity, that you will live in a place without my mercy, without my love, without my grace, which, by the way, is constant, consistent, burning, torment, and devouring. And sometimes people will be like, hey, I think the church needs to talk more like Jesus talked, because if we talked more like Jesus talked, we'd talk more about love and acceptance and that kind of stuff. However, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else, and he uses the same language as the Old Testament that it's not great, it's like a fire, it's devouring, it's horrible, it's like Gehenna, he calls it, like a garbage dump on fire. That it is a supernatural, eternal, never-ending oven that is for people that deny Jesus and don't believe in him. And see, what God begins to tell us, like a good, good father who always tells us the truth, he says, on that day, it'll go one or two ways for you. He says, for those who don't believe, for those who deny, for those that aren't Christians, this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. It doesn't get any better. This is the sweetest. This is the most hope. This is the best it'll ever be for you because eternity will be spent apart from God forever. However, as a Christ follower, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. This is the worst it'll ever be. Because when we see Jesus face to face, we will be with him in heaven forever, and it's amazing. Now, here's the thing, church. We have done a horrible job talking about heaven, a horrible job. Because we kind of talk about heaven like somehow you die, your body's buried, your soul goes to heaven, and, and somewhere along the way you turn into a, a chubby angel that wears diapers and plays a harp. And I don't know anybody that really wants to go there. Like, I don't necessarily want to be dressed like a baby and play a harp for eternity. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know most men that are like, that sounds great. Sign, <laughs> sign me up. Baby, diaper, harp, okay? And yet scripture gives us a much different idea of heaven. In fact, what the scripture says is that what happens is, is that when we die physically, our body goes in the ground and our soul goes to heaven, but at the end of all things, on the day of the Lord, one of the things that happens is our bodies resurrect from the grave. And what happens is our bodies resurrect. We leave the coffin or our ashes come back together. And what happens is our souls meet our body in the skies and we are glorified like Jesus. But we're perfect, which means like when we get to heaven, you won't be a chubby angel. You'll be like you are now yet glorified like Jesus was glorified. That in heaven, there's a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, the scripture talks about a new Jerusalem, which means in many ways, heaven's like a glorified, perfect city. 
And so sometimes my kids will ask questions about heaven, like, will, will there be people there? Will there be homes there? Can we go swimming in heaven? And I'm like, I think so. I think heaven's like a big, glorified, beautiful city where Jesus rules and reigns, and it's perfect. And the prophet Malachi begins to speak about heaven. He says, listen, hell's like a blazing fire of torment that consistently devours you. And then he uses some phrases to talk about heaven. And he says it's like the sun rising. And one of the things that's interesting about heaven is that there's no physical sun because the scriptures say that the sunlight in heaven is the glory of Jesus that he's that illuminating, that he's that bright, that he just lights the sky of heaven. So heaven's like the sun rising. It's the unveiled glory of Jesus. He says it's healing, that there's physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, that, that every single one of us in heaven will be totally perfect as God always attended. No more disability, no more heartache, no more cancer, no more sickness perfect, perfect. I love that the scripture says that John says in the book of Revelation that when he sees heaven and he sees what's happening there, it says we walk on streets of gold. And I love that because you go, like when God was designing heaven, he was like, hey, what should we pave the streets in? And it was like, hey, let's take something that man values so much, like gold. And let's just use that for the street. That's where people tread. And like nobody would think the street is the best place in the world. And the guy goes, hey, we'll use gold for that because heaven is so much better than even gold. There would be spiritual healing, physical healing, that we would see the unveiled glory of Jesus. And then he uses this last one. And he says it's like a stall door being opened and the calves leaping and, and going free. Now, I'm not a farmer, so I can't relate to this one totally. But I have dogs, and we lock two of our dogs, a golden retriever and a German shepherd, in our laundry room when we're gone. And so when we come home, like even in the driveway, we can hear the barking begin because the dogs are, are getting excited, and they know that we're home. And Well, at least, at least they think it's us or somebody else, right? And so I don't know what would happen if it's somebody else, but they get excited. So we go in the door, and we have a little baby gate that holds them back, and so they're jumping all over the place. They're getting crazy. And you know what happens when we take down the baby gate? They just take off. They just tear through the house, or they tear through the back door. They will trample you, even if you're a guest. They will jump up on you and lick your face because they are so excited to be free. And God, and God speaks to me, and he goes, kind of what like heaven's like is when you get there, you'll be so excited to be set free. You'll be so excited to be released. You'll be so excited to be in glory that it's like that. And see, one of the things that, that God's communicating to us is that every day that we live between now and then is preparation for the day of the Lord. That we, we, we live our lives kind of in anticipation, that we live our lives practicing for the day that we'll stand before the Lord, that we either go further from him, that one day when our knee is bowed and our tongues confess, it's like, oh yeah, he is real and I missed it, or it's worship. And we go, this is the sweetest thing because I've been doing this and loving you and growing in this, and now I get to do it to your face, Steve. See, one of the things that Malachi reminds us is that God, like a good father, always precedes wrath with mercy. That God always precedes wrath 
with mercy. And what that really means is that God's always giving us opportunities. That God is patient because he wants to see as many people saved in the knowledge and in the faith of Jesus as possible. And so this is the way he says it in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before it comes. And this is what he's talking about. He says, hey, remember Moses? You remember the story? Remember how I delivered you out of Israel? Remember how I I sent Moses? Remember how I sent the plagues? Remember how I went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and showed him that you are my people and I am your God? Remember how I led you out by a pillar of smoke, a pillar of fire? Remember how I parted the seas? Remember how I gave you my commands, my laws, my statutes? Remember how I provided for you in the wilderness with the man? Remember how I gave you the promised land? Do you remember who I am? Don't lose sight of who I am. Don't lose sight of the way I intercede. Don't lose sight of the blessings, but also don't lose sight of my commands that I've given you because they're for your good. And God says, I always send you prophets. I always send you prophets who prepare the way. I sent you Moses so he could give you the law and prepare the way. And he says, I sent you Elijah so he could prepare the way and announce the kingdom. And God says, always give you opportunities. And what he says is, and I'll give you more. And he says, behold, I will send you Elijah. Now, I want to I go through this quickly because this is a lot of Bible stuff. And I know for most of us, we're probably not asking this question, but I think it's really cool. So I want to give it to you this morning. So this is what God says. And then 400 laters, after this is pronounced and written, John the Baptist arrives. And what the scriptures say is that John the Baptist arrives like Elijah, that he, he shows up and he pronounces the kingdom is at hand. He says, repent for, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he prepares the way for Jesus. And so one of the questions we have to ask is, is John the Baptist Elijah that Malachi is speaking of? And the answer is confusing because it's yes and no. So here we go. Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to become. So there's some some scriptures that say, hey, John comes like Elijah, or John comes fulfilling the role of Elijah. Yet John chapter 1, verse 21, the Pharisees ask John, who are you? Because they're confused and they think he might be the Messiah, or they think he might be Elijah. And it says, verse 121, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they said, a prophet? And he answered, no. So is he or isn't he? And here's where I think we get the answer. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and he will go before him, speaking about John, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Quoting back to Malachi, which we're going to see in a minute. So here's what I think is happening. John the Baptist comes with the spirit of Elijah, which would be the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, if, if you see the succession that happens as Elijah is actually speaks about as a prophet who is filled with the Holy Spirit. After Elijah comes Elisha, who also is filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the, the scriptures speak about John that say that even in his mother's womb, the Spirit of God is upon him. And that he has the same purpose to pronounce the arrival of the kingdom of God, to pronounce the Messiah's coming to prepare the way. So different men with the same spirit. That the spirit of Elijah would be one of repentance, one of the kingdoms at hand, one of turn from your sin and trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the Messiah. Now, I want to see this. If this, this blows my mind, so if your mind's blown, you have permission. If you have questions, there's permission because there's mysterious things in the scripture we don't always understand, and this is one of them. Because John points the way to Jesus, baptized Jesus. John turns most of his disciples over. They become followers of Jesus. And John kind of takes a back seat and says, listen, my ministry's over. I was here to pronounce the way. I was here to point Jesus. Jesus is here. You don't really need me anymore. I'm just going to support Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus. John the Baptist is then murdered and beheaded. Dies, goes to heaven. Later, Jesus goes up onto the mountain and has a meeting. But Luke chapter 9, verses 29 to 31, and says, as he, this is Jesus, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. We call this the Mount of Transfiguration. And his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, so now here's the thing. You go, how in the world did that happen? I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know how God can do that, but he did. That The disciples say, hey, we saw Jesus in the middle of his prayer meeting. Moses showed up and Elijah showed up and they spoke about Jesus' death and resurrection and somehow Jesus was transfigured just like Moses when he met with God, came down from the mountain, changed. Here's why this is important. Is I, I want you to know that I believe that God always precedes his wrath with his mercy. That God's always giving us chances. God's always giving us opportunities. Now, this is why this is important. Because in Revelation chapter 11, 6, John doesn't use names. But he says, before the day of the Lord comes, there will be two witnesses that appear on earth. And this is kind of the last stand. Like for us as believers, when, when this happens, we should go, the time is really drawing near. And this is what it says, Revelation chapter eleven six. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Well, that would be Elijah that Elijah could pray and shut the sky so it wouldn't rain. And they will have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Well, that would be Moses. And strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they devour. Now, if you really want to go have some fun, go home and study Revelation chapter 11, because what it says is, is they will speak so boldly about Jesus and the day of the Lord that they will have so much power that both the religious and the rebellious 
just like they did for Jesus, will come together and murder them. And that their bodies will literally be on display for three days dead. And that there will be parties and celebrations and gatherings because these two men are finally dead. And then on the third day, they will rise again in power and everybody will freak out. Okay, so I'm saying that I think Malachi's fulfilled what we're talking about in a couple ways. But I think like the people of Israel, we're waiting for the second arrival of Elijah who says, Hey, when I show up again, you know the day of the Lord is at hand. This is why this is important. God is gracious and gives us opportunities to repent of our sin, to respond to the working of the Holy Spirit, to put our trust and our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So on one hand, God is patient with us. On the other hand, none of us has promised a tomorrow. None of us. And so I would suggest that what we're talking about here is that it means we're in a war, that we're in a battle, that today could be the final day. Or, or, or it couldn't be. I, I don't know. I just know that God is patient, but none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. It means that the powers of darkness are trying to put out the light and the truth in your life, in my life, in the light of the world. It means that worldliness fights for your mind every day, but it also means that we're supposed to fight back. It means we're supposed to fight for the gospel. We're supposed to fight for freedom. We're supposed to fight for our minds. And one of the things that, that God speaks through Malachi is he says, remember Remember Moses, remember the law, remember Elijah, that there is power in the past, in the present through memory. That when we go through battles, we can remember, yeah, yeah, but God is the God of Moses. God sent Elijah. God did this. God is the deliverer. God did this. And we continually put our trust in him because here's one of the, our, our biggest disadvantages. Or maybe think of it this way. The greatest threat to our lives as believers is that we would become too comfortable here. That the author of Hebrews says, hey, you are sojourners and strangers. Some of your verses say aliens in this world. That we live in this world, but we're not of this world. That our heart's cry should be for our Father in heaven. That we should have a desire for glory. That one of the anthems for our heart should be, come Lord Jesus, restore. Come Lord Jesus, reheal. Come Lord Jesus, make everything as it's supposed to to be, and that we would have a passion for him, that we'd have a passion to reach the lost, that we'd have a passion to live, that there would be power in our purity, in our love for Jesus. And so he's reminding us, don't get too comfortable here. There's more to this life than just today. There's eternity. Now we're going to wrap this thing up, and some of you have already read ahead. But to me, this is intriguing. Because what God says is, I'm a father, I love you, and here's something you have to know. There is a day coming where you will stand before me, and on that day you will go to heaven or you will go to hell, and it's not about how good you are, it's about Jesus. And have you been saved by him? Do you have his spirit in you? And so listen, if you're going to wrap this thing up, right, if this is like a church meeting, we go, hey, how do we want to write this letter? We wanna, I think we'd say, hey, let's talk about evangelists, let's talk about church planning. Let's talk about strategies to reach the world, right? Let, let's get after it. And then Malachi finishes this way with the holy, perfect, good word from our Father, verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But God speaks to the Israelites 
through the prophet Malachi, and he says, I know it seems like the world is going to heck in a handbasket. And there will be a day that you will stand before me and the, the judgment is heaven or hell. He says, so you know who God is calling forth? Fathers. Our heavenly father is calling forth fathers. He says, you know one of the things that will happen is the hearts of fathers will be turned towards their children. And their children's hearts will be turned towards their fathers. It means that fathers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will become like their heavenly father and have a, a, a father's heart. It means uh, fathers love Jesus and love your kids, and that changes everything. That a father's love actually can change the legacy of a family, not just for one generation, but for many generations. In fact, there's, there's kind of this neat thing that's happening is that by reminding of us of Moses and Elijah, what God is really calling us back to is uh, of being the people of God who come from our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And going, hey, remember all the way back to the beginning. Remember, remember my promises. Remember my covenants. And God says, you know how we're going to get back to that? By the way, fathers love their children. But it's going to take a father's heart. And so dads, I, I want to talk to you for just a second. Actually, every guy in the room, I just want to talk to you for, for one second. Because dads, one of the greatest lies you've been told is that you don't matter. And it's not true. Here's your verse. Like God says, hey, you know how we're going to change the world? You know how the Holy Spirit's going to change the world? He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And their children's hearts back to their fathers. But one of the greatest lies you've been told is that when your kids turn 18, they don't need you anymore. Like, oh, once they're out of my house, they're done. And that's just like the craziest thing because once your kids turn 18, they're going to make some of the biggest decisions in their life. And to think they don't need you is just crazy. That your kids need you and you matter. That the Messiah wants to turn your heart into a heart of a father. And by the way you love for your kids, the way you provide for your kids, the way you interact for your kids, it should lead them to know the Heavenly Father. And that, that one day they would grow up and be fathers who have a father's heart and the way they love their children would lead their children to be. And this is all the work of the Holy Spirit by the power of Jesus in your life. Now look at this. I want you to see this and we're, we're almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. Because I know this isn't something we talk about in the church very often. Like you might have been at church for years, but like I haven't heard much about this fatherhood or spiritual fatherhood. Where does this come from? Well, look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth. For you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Because remember that whole thing that, that, that like God said about fathers and spiritual fathers and having the heart of the father? He says, you have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Here's what he says. He goes, you need more fathers. And because I can't be with you, I'm going to send you my spiritual son, who will become your spiritual father, so that you can become his spiritual child, so that you can become spiritual fathers to other child, so they can become fathers, and it would be generations of people who know and love Jesus. Because we live in a culture and a time where what our community needs are spiritual fathers. More than ever, we live in a time where there's 
No, there's, there's more kids that don't have fathers than there are kids that have fathers. And what God's calling us to is to have a father's heart. So it means in your home, if you're so blessed to have kids in a family, then love, love your kids and love your family like God loves you. But it also means if you don't have kids, you're, you're not out of this. Or if your kids are all grown up and far away, you're not out of this because what we need is spiritual fathers. But we need men who would love people like a father and shepherd them because some of them don't know how because they were never told how. Their father never showed them what it meant to look like to be a father. So we need people. So it means this. It means if you're in your 30s, spend time with other men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s and learn from them. Listen to their experience. Grow in their walk with Jesus with them. Learn what they've learned. Let them save you some heartache and heartbreak that they've experienced. And don't just do that. Spend time with people younger than you. You lean forward to the guys older than you, and you lean back into the people who are younger than you. It means if you're a teenager, if you're in your early 20s, hang out with men that are older than you and learn from them. And here's what I know. You already don't think they're cool. And here's the thing. They don't think they're cool either. But they know more than you know. And you need to trust them. Because they've been where they've, you've been, and they made it through. You haven't made it through yet. So trust them. Listen to them. Let them love you. Let them pray for you and teach you how to know Jesus because they could actually help you avoid some pain, some headaches, and some heartbreak. And listen, if you're a teenager in your early 20s, don't waste your youth because the little kids, you're the coolest thing on the planet. So what you say and what you do, they'll say and they'll do. So encourage them. Talk to them about Jesus. Hang out in the children's ministry from time to time because they will listen to you and follow you. We need fathers in the homes, and we need fathers in the church. And the reality is, if we had more men with a father's heart, then that's how we'll change the world. That if we look at our homes, and if we look at our church, and if we look at our community and say, hey, I'm just here to love people like a father, changes the world. So listen, in closing, if we have to sum this up, God is saying that he is a father who loves his children. And the reality is, is that we've rebelled and sinned against him, and the consequence that for that is hell. But the good news is, we don't have to go there. The God in his great love for us sent Jesus, who died in our place for our sin, absorbed the wrath of God, and on the third day rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And that God the Father is calling forth fathers so that more people can be saved because the day of the Lord is coming. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.